0: Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on ethics, politics, and current affairs. This is a bonus episode that I'm running in light of the ongoing protests taking place this week in cities across the United States and indeed in cities around the world, which have of course included many calls for police reform. So for this episode, I reached out to Roger McCollum in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Roger describes himself as a former police person now engaged in peace building and human rights. Roger was a police officer in Northern Ireland for 26 years and most of that time was during the Troubles, the violent conflict that divided Northern Ireland for decades. Police played a significant role in that conflict. As an institution of the British state, they were seen as targeting Catholic and nationalist communities, while they were also a a very major target of IRA violence from the Irish Republican Army. So as a result, police reform was a major part of Northern Ireland's peace process, and Roger was a part of that too. He helped facilitate the Patent Commission, which was an independent international commission that focused on reforming the police uh, force in Northern Ireland and suggested 175 reforms to do that. Roger now advises police forces around the world based largely on this experience. So I was curious to speak with him first to hear about his personal journey in Northern Ireland from being an active police officer during an armed conflict to then engaging in international police reform. and specifically this week to hear his insights on what's happening in the United States and what he thinks um, you know some lessons might be um, translatable to uh, to the states right now. Neither I nor Roger are suggesting that the lessons from Northern Ireland are a direct fit or can or should be, you know replicated or copied uh, completely. I mean, they are obviously completely different contexts with completely different histories and structural inequalities. And there are many other voices speaking much more eloquently on those topics right now. But one thing that resonated with me in this conversation is Roger's emphasis on the need for uncomfortable conversations. I mean, don't get me wrong, we both recognize the urgent need for real policy and institutional changes, and both of us work on that level as well, and we talk about that too. But making those policy changes stick, I think, requires really tough work at the interpersonal level, the human level as well, and this is something that Roger really draws out, and he says you know, that just means engaging in lots of difficult conversations in lots of different ways with lots of different people. I learned a lot from this conversation and I hope you will too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Roger McCallum. I think on your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as a former police person now engaged in peace building and human rights. Is that, uh, is that pretty accurate?
1: Yeah, it's, I uh, sort of did 27 years in the police. Uh, then I remember Doing uh, towards the end of that time, I thought, well, let's see if I can maybe help to build a, f- a better community relations as time goes on. I was involved a little bit with the Patton proposals, and I certainly Patton came around to visit uh, myself in Ballymena when I was the police commander there in about 1999 or so, and we showed him what we were doing in Ballymena, and he seemed to get a few good ideas from that. We were always quite into policing with the community, whereby uh, if you go back to what Robert Peel said, policing is really all about working with the community, the the public or the the police, and the police are the public. And I think that's a, a very important thing to remember, because like a lot of professions, Uh, The people in the profession, whether it be policing or the medical profession or the legal profession, we can get a little bit remote from, if you like, the customers and and, and indeed, I think, in the past, there's been a belief sometimes that we know better, but we don't actually know better because we are there to to serve the public. It's, it's It's a word you hear sometimes in America, serving the public or to... I don't know exactly what the word is, but to serve is a very important thing within American policing. And I think that's something that we do here as well. So it's about having difficult conversations with the public. It's about uh, listening to what they have to say. It's about explaining things. It's about communication, which is very important as well. And that was something that we were trying to do in Ballymena in the late 1990s, Listen to the public about whatever the issues were. In those cases, it was... The drugs issue particularly heroin and then maybe coming up with creative ways in which we could work with the public in addressing things like that so Patton came to visit us and uh, then I had a follow-up meeting with him up in Belfast, himself and his team at a later stage, and uh, maybe possibly helped to develop some of the concepts that eventually lead, led to his report, and uh, the element of policing with the community, which was personified in the creation of uh, policing community, policing partnerships, and leading eventually to the policing board. and. Uh, what we have now in the way of policing and community safety partnerships. So that's a
0: quick introduction
1: <laughs> of maybe where I'm coming
0: from. Yeah, that's great. And I, I'll pick up on a few of those things. And and the Patent Commission, of course, was the, the commission on how to reform the police service in Northern Ireland coming out of the of Troubles, right? Well, I'll just back up a little bit. and just I would just like to ask you first, how did you first decide to become a police officer?
1: Well, I uh, grew up in Belfast largely in the 60s, uh, 50s and 60s, and then was a member of the the Protestant community, uh, grew up in East Belfast, went to what was a largely Protestant school. Uh, The housing estate was of the, the, the Protestant persuasion as well, where I lived. And uh, then I was lucky enough to get, uh, good enough A-levels to get into university, and in 1972 I went to Queen's University to study law, which I did for four years, particularly like criminal law, and I think I did advanced criminal law in my fourth year. And in 1976, unlike, I think, nearly everybody else in the, in the, in the cohort, decided to, to join the police. Uh, initially, for a while, because I think of this idea about putting back a little bit of what I had taken out of education. And in those days, uh, you had your fees paid for you and you got a, a small grant to go. And I thought, well, the taxpayers being been good enough to get me a law degree. I'll maybe go and spend a couple or three years uh, in policing Um, and so joined the police in 1976, it was the Royal Ulster Constabulary in those days and spent the next 26 years in the RUC and subsequently the PSNI before retiring from policing in 2002 and then doing uh, a little bit of international work with policing and also beginning to think
0: about peace building, beginning to think about conflict transformation, based upon maybe my experiences in the police for the the quarter of a century or so. And what was policing like during that time? What was policing like in Northern Ireland during the Troubles?
1: Well, there was no doubt you knew what you were joining uh, when you joined the police in, uh, in the mid 70s and indeed before and after that. The police in those days in Northern Ireland, I think it was the United Nations or some group had described it, without being dramatic as the most dangerous policing environment in the world. And you had, uh, I think El Salvador was listed second in those days. So maybe things put things in perspective a little bit. But there's no doubt about it. You knew you weren't joining a normal police service. It was a police service uh, that was dealing with ordinary crime and criminality, that was dealing with the ordinary uh, social cohesion issues that you have, uh, antisocial behaviour, drugs, and so on and so forth. But there was also that element of uh, the security situation whereby you just couldn't uh, go and talk to anybody in the street uh, on your own. You had to go to certain areas and certain places, uh, maybe with either two or three other police officers, or indeed with army support, because the army were in Northern Ireland at that time. Uh, I think in 1976, when I joined, the police had only just taken back primacy of the security situation, because before that it was seen that the police, the RUC, didn't have enough police officers to lead on the, uh, the terrorist situation. And it was only in 76 when they built up the numbers through people like myself that they felt they could take back that primacy again so it was difficult in those days um you had to be aware of the security pressures you had to be aware of the security situation you couldn't hang out for example your police uniform on the clothesline to get dried in case it identified you as a police officer uh, as you may know, you had to check under your car uh, every morning or every evening before you drove it off in case someone had planted an undercar be trap beneath it. Uh, if you went along to a course, maybe in a local institute, and I remember doing a course on dancing, actually, uh, at the local rugby club, you had to pretend you were a social worker or a civil servant rather than telling people that you were a police officer, and certainly, if you had children, I didn't in those days, but I know colleagues that did have children. Uh, you had to make sure that they didn't tell their classmates what their mummy or what their daddy did. So it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a lie you, you lived at certain times, but it was uh, you know a lie that got you through and kept you alive. And that was a very important thing as well. So it was quite a, a difficult environment to be in. But because you'd lived here, or I'd lived here from from 1953, it wasn't as if you were coming in from uh, another place. You knew what was going
0: on and you were aware of it. And I think that awareness did help you. And... Having lived in Belfast, I'm aware of some of this, but why was there that much targeting of police officers during that time, and why would you have had to conceal your identity in that way?
1: Well, uh, the RUC and indeed uh, Northern Ireland, I suppose you could say, were settled in the early 1920s. Uh, there was always going into the historical background, there was always a large proportion of the population that at best felt uncomfortable and at worst felt very hostile towards the creation of Northern Ireland, uh, believing that uh, it was a bit of a cop-out from uh, the, the Civil War and that uh, it would have been better to have had uh, the 32-county Irish Republic. So there was always that element of the six counties in the north, were different and that folk felt that they couldn't, from certain, the nationalist community, that they couldn't join the police because that was seen as part of the the problem, that was seen as part of the, if you like, the British state in Ireland. Interestingly enough, when the uh, police were set up, the RUC was set up in the 1920s, I believe one third of the places there was roughly one third of the population in those days were from the Catholic tradition. One third of the places in the RUC were reserved for folk from the Catholic community to try and make it as balanced a police service as possible. I don't think it ever got beyond a figure of about 25% or so. and The 25% that were, uh, that, that were in the RUC that were members of the Catholic or nationalist community then went down as the years went on and by the time uh, of uh, the late 1990s I think the Catholic percentage in the RUC was down to something like six or seven percent which clearly in any organization whereby 40 uh, percent of the population are a little bit more are drawn from a particular minority group it is not representative it is not a good situation and it's something we can maybe discuss a little bit later on so you had that innate hostility uh, from the very beginning of Northern Ireland to the uh, the RUC and it wasn't the case always of folk not wanting to join because they were against uh, the RUC or they were against the uh, the entity of Northern Ireland, but there was a severe amount of intimidation of folk from the Catholic community that wanted to join the police. They were maybe getting hassle, if you like it best, from their family or from their friends about why would you want to to join uh, such a British police service. Uh, so there was that. Uh, when you have a deficit like that, you have an us-and-them mentality. You have then uh, various uh, Irish Republican Army (IRA) campaigns from the twenties through the thirties and the forties and the late fifties and the early sixties, uh, whereby the IRA were uh, taking on the British state, whether it be the army or whether it be institutions such as the RUC. Uh, so you had that armed police service right from the word go. One of the big things about policing, which is quite unique in the UK, is the idea of policing by consent, whereby it is traditionally, I'm talking about the UK police service here, an unarmed police service. There, are, uh, To this day, that is the case, except for members of the RUC stroke PSNI, who have, apart from a couple of years in, in the late 1960s, who have always been unarmed Police service. So you have that militarization of policing here, right from the word go, and maybe that encapsulates a little bit mm-hmm. of part of the issues that, that we felt in the 1970s.
0: And I think importantly, you you said how the RUC at that time was tasked with responding to the threat of terrorism or the threat of armed operations from the IRA and from other groups. What did that mean then for the way you had to police, and especially police in Catholic or nationalist communities and areas? Well, the the
1: ideal would have been policing with the community, but because of the resentment amongst some members of the nationalist community and the Republican community, uh, and indeed, the outright hostility shown from some members of that community, you had to be prepared to police differently than you would have in maybe, uh, if I can describe it as the PUL, or the Protestant Unionist Loyalist Communities, where there would have been more acceptance, more approval, if you like, of placing. Having said that, if you look at surveys that were carried out, it wasn't as if every nationalist and every Republican was against the police there was quite a bit of approval rating but because of the armed threat because of things such as riots that would have been going on uh, there was a case that you had to take certain extra precautions when you're a policing area such as that now was the police doing all the security stuff on the ground along with uh, their normal policing task as well and with the right interpretation of history and with the right dynamic against the state organization such as the place then hostility would have uh, developed in areas such as that so you had to use a lot more care very unfortunately uh, i would have gone into certain nationalist and republican areas in the past and talked to folk and you did get that hostility which was sometimes overt hostility. But covertly, or speaking to people on the phone, or maybe in a more private situation, uh, you would have got uh, to know them better. You would have developed relationships. So that was an important thing about relationship building in a small area. But generally, there was it was more difficult at times whenever the IRA campaign was going on at full strength to place areas like that in a policing with the community type of way.
0: You are listening to The Julie Norman Show. Yeah, what's just interesting, so much of what you've said and some of even the words that You've used, I think, really resonate a lot in the U.S. context right now in terms of, you know, this historical legacy of divisions between communities that goes back, you know, decades, if not centuries, you know, resentment combined with, you know, uh, militarization of police forces and what that also means. It's kind of this growing rift, perhaps, that makes community policing in the way that you've described it, you know, so much more difficult. So, how then did the RUC manage to shift into a really completely different entity, I guess, under the, 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 the PSNI? And what changes were involved in that? I'm aware that the Patent Commission you mentioned before, I think recommended like 175 recommendations or something close to that number for change. So you mentioned a few of them before, but I was wondering if you can just say like how did how did the police force change from the RUC to the PSNI and what were some of the key changes that were undertaken to make that happen?
1: Just very briefly the RUC had been the first police service in the UK if not maybe in the world to introduce a code of ethics in the 1980s and the code of ethics is something which is very important uh, today in policing in Northern Ireland and indeed further availing is something I think which would be useful in the American situation that, that we're presently uh, facing. So I think that's something we'll maybe talk about a little bit later on if, uh, if we have time. Mm-hmm uh so with the good friday agreement kicked in in 1998 and it said very quickly that uh, policing needed to be independently reviewed and uh chris Patton, who was i think then the governor of hong kong was put in charge of a team of about nine uh, eminent folk including i think a guy if I remember correctly I think I showed him around Belfast called, I think he was called Jerry Lynch from the John Jay University in New York Uh, was one of the team and I think there was a Commissioner of the Canadian Police as well, but it was a very international team as well as including some local people, very powerful team and they held uh, town hall meetings with the public they spoke to police officers like myself they spoke to Very importantly police officers on the ground because uh, they are the ones that are actually delivering the service to the public. Uh, They looked at international examples of best practice and in 1999, I think it was September 1999, they produced this document called A New Beginning on Policing in Northern Ireland with, as you say, 175 recommendations. Every one of which I am led to believe has been met, apart from one, the one being the building of a brand new police college, uh, which hasn't been achieved, and there's been many reasons for that, but the other 174 have been met, including making uh, the new police service very human rights compliant, uh, putting human rights right at the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of policing and one of the main ways of doing that is through the development of an enhanced code of ethics. The importance of culture and ethos and symbols, the RUC flag uh, changed and became the PSNI flag, Uh, the cap badge, the uniform all changed. The oath of allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen uh, changed and there is now an attestation which is more neutral but uh, completely emphasises the importance of the code of ethics and impartiality. Uh, The police estate has changed. There's been a softening of the uh, harder type of police station or police building which up to the end been surrounded by fortifications and army and police signers another central bit was the recruitment we had uh, I think in the at, the at the top of the troubles of the conflict we had maybe 13,000 police officers uh, backed up by 2 or 3,000 civilian support as time went on and uh, the ceasefires kicked in Uh, and the uh, Good Friday Agreement kicked in, there wasn't the need for the same sort of numbers, so Patton suggested numbers be reduced to about 7,500 police officers, and that was fair enough. Uh, And the interesting thing was that he also suggested that there be 50-50 recruitment, and I think this is a very important thing and maybe of relevance to the situation in America. indeed and indeed further apart, uh, as I said before, we had in the late 90s a police service which was about 7% drawn from the Catholic community and 7% female, and neither of which are all satisfactory. And I remember talking to, I think it was a member of the uh, Gay Police Officers Association over in England during a course I was doing in Bramshill, which is the sort of central college for police managers in England in those days. And he was asking about uh, how the LGBT police officers in the RUC were finding things and, and getting on with things. And I had to say to the guy, I, look, I don't honestly know a member of the RUC who's a member of the LGBT community Uh, because in those days uh, for whatever reason I imagine they didn't feel that uh, that they could come out and it is also gratifying to see nowadays that we are a far more diverse police service and that there are many members of the LGBTQ community who are in the PSNI and are extremely respected as such and uh, take a full part in pride parades and pride demonstrations and, uh, and indeed informing the debate and the discussion around that area. So we had a very sort of uh, one type of police officer up until the late 1990s. Then 50-50 recruitment was introduced by the Patent Commission, which meant that for every 50 Catholic police officers that would be accepted into the police, you could have 50 other police officers, which would include Protestants, members of the Muslim community, uh, members of the Jewish community, so on and so forth to try and redress this balance from 6% upwards. Very controversial at the time, offended all sorts of equality legislation, but it was a situation which uh, continued for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, uh, the percentage of Catholic police officers had gone up to just, I think, below 30% at the moment. I think it's about 31% or so, which is not ideal, but it's a heck of a lot better. Than was the case before that. Uh, the members of the or female police officers have gone up from about 7% to about 30% as well, not because there was any change in legislation to go for 50 50 male female, but because the maybe the PR, maybe the advertising was better and it was a better police service for female police officers to join. So that is is a good thing as well, that they are now about a third of police officers. So 50-50 recruitment, controversial at the time, did work. It's back on the agenda again at the moment because there's a fear that the critical mass of 30% uh, Catholics may not continue and the numbers may come down a little bit, so something to think about there. But a number of other things that have arisen from that are it is still quite a middle-class profession. There are not many folk from, and I hate to use the phrase, but I'll use the phrase from the point of view of simplicity, working-class Catholic or, and in particular, working-class Protestant communities joining for whatever reason and I know it's something that's been brought up in the policing board which is the organisation to which the chief constable is accountable in Northern Ireland. We need to make, we've had great progress, we're good but we can't get complacent, we need to hold on to the progress that has been made so far and we need to make it an even more representative organisation because it is only by having an organization which is truly representative of of the society which it pleases or which it serves, that we can be truly successful, in my opinion. And that is something that may have to be looked at in America or indeed other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've crucially raised that issue of representation and recruitment, also of the ethos of community policing, as well as some of the more specific mechanisms like the policing board, um, you know, the police ombudsman, like more accountability kind of measures. So how did that or how has that been received by the public, especially by Catholic or nationalist communities? How do you gain public trust when reforming an institution like this? And how long does that take?
1: I think first of all you have to communicate everything communication is central uh to a lot of these dynamics both internally and externally uh, before you can communicate with the public you also have to communicate with your own police officers with your own police staff you have to let them know what's going on there has to be no surprises around the corner and i think that was something that could have been done a little bit better at the time of this great reform from uh, the RUC to the PSNI. Uh, there was this feeling amongst police officers, why is the RUC being reformed in a day? Why is the RUC being disbanded? Because we have done nothing wrong. There was a feeling that 302 police officers had died from 1969 until 2001. Over 300 police officers had been very seriously injured. 10,000 police officers had been injured to a greater or lesser extent. And the vast majority had done absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever. So communicate out there out to your your people, your staff, your police officers what is going on so that there are no surprises. Then you have to let the public know what is going on, what your intentions are, what your eventual outcomes to the whole process are. There's no point just reforming something for the sake of reforming something, then saying it's great we've reformed and disbanded or whatever the police service, that that is not the case. There has to be an even better product comes out at the end. And I think that that has been the case that the the journey uh, is probably more important than the actual goal itself and the journey is where you keep people on board, where you keep public expectations at a certain level, where you let people know what's going on and, and that is absolutely essential and I think the, uh, the recent surveys show that the public approval of policing is at about or so, which is is pretty good for an organisation which in some ways is sometimes looked upon as the enforcer of rules and regulations and speeding and wearing seatbelts and things like that. So to have maybe 80% of the public on your side is, is pretty good and policing by consent is also there. But it needs to be maintained, it needs to be continued. In conversations I would have with from maybe Sinn Féin uh, and with folk from uh, some loyalist groups that I do work with there is still that little bit of hesitation in jumping into bed completely with placing. These are important issues that have to be looked at and addressed and the best way to do that is by communication, developing individual relationships, talking to people
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in so much of what you just said, in that even when there are institutional reforms, even when there are policy reforms, that sense of having that communication at the community level, having those spaces for dialogue, whether it's through arts or through other means, is just so crucial. And I think that kind of long durée idea is going to be something that will be important in the U.S. of... How do you make this an ongoing, like community process and not just, you know, a one off, you know, one policy thing that's maybe done or not done? So, I I guess on that note, I would just ask you directly do you think the US police system right now needs reforms? And if so, what would you recommend?
1: Wow. Well, uh, it's not an area I have any great knowledge of, and it seems a very complex situation. Indeed, I saw. I think it was some programme was on TV in the last few days that said there was something like 18,000 different police services in the US. That's right. Now, if that is the case, that is going to be one heck of a challenge to reform that. Uh, the, the good thing about the situation in Northern Ireland was it was one entity and there was one police force or police service, which made things a lot easier. Uh, even in Great Britain and there was a debate in the early 1960s if I remember correctly about should we have one police service for the whole of Great Britain or, and, and indeed maybe the whole of the UK and they decided against that and went for I think it was each county or something I think we was forty three different police services but at least there was certain commonality there they all got the same sort of leadership training from this place I call Bram's Hill, they worked to the same laws, they worked to uh, what's called the Association of Chief Police Officers, ACPO, where they were the the chief constables all sat around the table together discussing things. And uh, that was uh, given a little bit of commonality, but how you go about in the States, Putting together maybe 18,000 different police services, it will be very challenging and something that uh, I think has to be done at the very highest level. You know, my fear is that for the many good friends I have in the States is that we have the present situation with the situations in the nineteen. 60s with situations uh in the 1920s where similar sorts of dynamics were seen to play out on the streets and nothing really seems to have changed so i think now is the time maybe not ideal with the the virus, the pandemic virus and the threat of recession. recessionistic like all your worst nightmares coming together at the same time but it why not why not grasp the opportunity and go for it and, and start with reform of the police service and probably like the RUC and the PSNI, 98, 99% of the police officers are really committed to doing a good job. Uh, there are ones that play out on the stage, as Shakespeare talks about all the worlds of stage and all the men and women merely players at uh, various times, they have their exits and their entrances, but we see the worst on the stage at times, but we also see the best on the stage at times. When we see the the police officers out there and the politicians that are, I think the phrase is taking the knee or something, when they're getting down there and they're, you know, they're supporting the Black Lives Matter uh, situation as well and involve and talk to. The representatives of the uh, the various black groups and other minority groups as well that are out there. Uh, I mean, we often see many black officers on the streets. Listen, what are they bringing to the show? Why did they decide, like the Catholic, like, like the Republican, like the like the loyalists to join the PSNI or the RUC? Why did they decide to join the NYPD or the LAPD and, and get a feeling of that? And think about maybe having to have some element of positive discrimination uh, when it comes down to recruitment. I have no idea what the makeup of police officers are, I would imagine. There's quite a few in NYPD or Irish stock, certainly. If you watch the likes of Blue Bloods, it seems to be a tradition in New York and probably other places uh, that it's a sort of Irish uh, person's or Irish ancestry type of job to get into. Indeed, in their own day, they were the minority group there. They had to to stand up to discrimination. So, have as wide a consultation as possible, and communicate, and think about codes of ethics. Code of ethics is an extremely important part of the PSNI app today, and see what international best practices out there, because you know. For a while we were uh, bombarded by people coming over to see what the PSNI were doing and how they had performed the material. So there's no invent- there's no intention sometimes to invent the wheel if the wheel is already about somewhere and can be looked at and examined. But uh, clearly something needs to be done, I think, in America. And you can learn from maybe international best practice in other places, uh, talk to people, communicate, chat, have the difficult conversations. I have sat in the likes of the Felons Club in the Falls Road in West Belfast and had the difficult conversations following a play and uh, parts of uh, the bog side as well. Uh, I've been shown around by members of uh, the Bloody Sunday families about what happened uh, and heard their views. And, uh, you know, I, I've listened to the story of a relation of one of the people that were that were killed in Bloody Sunday, uh, a lovely guy. And I met him the following day, a uh, very impassioned fellow indeed. And I met him the following day and he was sweeping the leaves from the memorial around the Bloody Sunday uh, oh. Memorial in at uh, Free Dairy Corner, you know, and he's been doing that for every day for the last 40 years. 50 years or so and you know a great guy absolutely super but an uncomfortable conversation but he listened to my un- com- probably uncomfortable conversation as well and, and we developed conversations and uh, I was asked once upon a time to meet up a person in Belfast uh, who, had, who had really had a very poor time from the police and the IRA in the past and I don't know really according to him who treated him worst and uh, when we got together for the meeting uh, that he'd asked for just with a senior police officer uh, he couldn't look me in the eye and he just couldn't shake my hands not because he was a bad person who was anti-police but because he couldn't actually physically do it and he told me his story. And I told him what it was like to be sitting in the back of a police Land Rover with uh, stones being thrown at you or having the road in front of you explode. And uh, putting over that, I suppose, that human story, as he had put over his human story, and he said, you know, Roger, I would really like it if you could come out there for a site visit to where this awful incident happened. And I met him at the particular site and uh, he showed me around it. And uh, we then went for a coffee and he shook my hand and uh, we exchanged uh, mobile telephone numbers and, you know, I don't know, it make a difference It maybe makes a difference to him and me. Hopefully it can be ruled out, maybe. You know, I talk to people, he'll talk to people. And it's seeing the, as Lawrence talks about, it's seeing the human below the uniform or the human below the suit or the human below the balaclava or whatever, because... You know, who's bad and who's good? It's all a question of, uh, of discussion and perception and where you're coming from. And in the States, who's bad and who's good? And it's about knowing the culture of the other, or them and, as we talk about them as the other. And uh, getting involved with the culture. And it needs to be more than just uh, statements for the cameras or statements for the media or statements for uh, the various uh, FaceTimes and things like that. It has to be real statements followed up by real actions, and it has to be sustainable. It has to be something that is sustained for five years or 10 years that really, really, really makes a difference. And it has to be something that can be measured. It has to be an outcome which can be measured as well. So possibly there's some ramblings in there that might help in some way. Uh, finally maybe to say that uh, much as I'm against a lot of bureaucracy over here uh, things the, the two main parties seem to be working pretty well at the moment in the face of the pandemic and they produced a document called a program for government of which there are 12 main themes and they're very good themes they're quite aspirational things, but nonetheless they're about you know, making a more equal society being one of them and making creating a safer community. And I think if you can have those major big headline themes that can produce work points, that can produce outputs leading to outcomes that can be and patent find this out, you had to keep monitoring the change. If you took your foot off the accelerator, the Pace of change might slow or you may not achieve 174 out of the 175 recommendations. So there needs to be monitoring. You need to have an independent group to do that. But if you put all those things into place in some sort of strategic way, then it can be a strategic way of dealing things along with Roger and the other person having a chat over a coffee in Belfast somewhere. So it's about developing relationships as well, Julie.
0: Mm -hmm. And I I love how you said that, right? How we do need this larger strategic level, but we also need those uncomfortable conversations and sometimes relationship building on the personal level too, and just how crucial that is and recognizing that it's gonna be a long process. On that note, I'd like to thank Roger McCollum for his time and his reflections today. Thank you also to Drew McKyle, who helped make this episode possible. You have been listening to The Julie Norman Show. If you like the show, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. Stay well, stay safe, and join us again next time.